This performance is a co-production of loudlit.org and Literal Systems. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain Performed by Mark Devine Chapter 14 By and by, when we got up, we turned over the truck the gang had stole off of the wreck and found boots and blankets and clothes and all sorts of other things, and a lot of books and a spyglass and three boxes of cigars. We had never been this rich before in neither of our lives. The cigars was prime. We laid off all the afternoon in the woods talking, and me reading the books and having a general good time. I told Jim all about what happened inside the wreck and at the ferry boat, and I said these kinds of things was adventures, but he said he didn't want no more adventures. He said that when I went into Texas and he crawled back to get on the raft and found her gone and he nearly died because he judged it was all up with him any way it could be fixed. For if he didn't get saved, he would get drowned. And if he did get saved, whoever saved him would send him back home so as to get the reward, and then Miss Watson would sell him south, sure. Well, he was right. He was most always right. He had an uncommon level head for a nigger. I read considerable to Jim about kings and dukes and earls and such, and how gaudy they dressed, and how much style they put on, and called each other your majesty and your grace and your lordship and so on, instead of mister, and Jim's eyes bugged out and he was interested. He says, I didn't know there was so many of them. I ain't heard about none of them, scarcely, but old King Solomon, unless you count them kings that's on a pack of cards. How much do a king get? Get, I says. Why, they get a thousand dollars a month if they want it. They can have just as much as they want. Everything belongs to them. Ain't that gay? What do they got to do, Huck? They don't do nothing. Why, how you talk? They just sit around. No, is that so? Of course it is. They just sit around, except maybe when there's a war. Then they go to war. But other times, they just lazy around or go hawking. Just hawking and... Shh. Did you hear a noise? We skipped out and looked, but it weren't nothing but the flutter of a steamboat's wheel away down, coming around the point, so we come back. Yes, says I, and other times, when things is dull, they fuss with the parliament, and if everybody don't go just so, he whacks their heads off, but mostly they hang around the harem. Round a witch? Harem. What's the harem? The place where he keeps his wives. Don't you know about the harem? Solomon had one. He had about a million wives. Why, yes, that's so. I, I done forgot it. A harem's a boarding house, I reckon. Most likely they has rackety times in the nursery. And I reckon the wives quarrels considerable, and that creased the racket. Yet they say Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. I don't take no stock in that, because why? Would a wise man want to live in the midst of such a blim blamming all the time? No, deed he wouldn't. A wise man would take and build a biler factory, and then he could shut down the biler factory when he want to rest. Well, but he was the wisest man anyway, because the widow, she told me so, her own self. I don't care what the widow say. He weren't no wise man nother. He had some of the dad fatuous ways I ever see. Did you know about that child that he was gwine to chop into? Well, yes, the widow told me all about it. Well, then, weren't that the beatenest notion in the world? You just take and look at it a minute. There's a stump there. That's one of the women. Here's you. That's the other one. And I's Solomon. And this here dollar bill's the child. Both of you claims it. What does I do? 
does I shin around amongst the neighbors and find out which one of you the bill do belong to, and hand it over the right one, all safe and sound the way that anybody that had any gumption would? No, I'd take and whack the bill in two, and give half of it to you, and the other half to the other woman. That's the way Solomon was going to do it with the child. Now I want to ask you, what's the use of the half of the bill? Can't buy nothing with it. And what use is half a child? I wouldn't give a darn for a million of them. But hang it, Jim, you've clean missed the point. Blame it, you've missed it a thousand mile. Who, me? Go along, don't talk to me about your pints. I reckon I know sense when I sees it, and there ain't no sense in such a doing as that. Dispute weren't about a half a child. Dispute was about a whole child. And the man that think he can settle a dispute about a whole child with a half a child don't know enough to come out in the rain. Don't talk to me about Solomon Huck. I know him by the back. But I tell you, you don't get the point. Blame the point. I reckon I knows what I knows. And mind you, the real pine is down further. It's down deeper. It lays in the way Solomon was raised. You take a man that's got only one or two chillin'. Is that man going to be wasteful of chillin'? No, he ain't. He can't afford it. He knows how to value him. But you take a man that's got about five million chillin' run around the house, and it's different. He as soon chop a child in two as a cat. There's plenty more. A child or two, more or less, were no consequence to Solomon, Dad fetch him. I never see such a nigger. If he got a notion in his head once, there weren't no getting it out again. He was the most down on Solomon of any nigger I ever see. So I went to talking about other kings and let Solomon slide. I told about Louis XVI that got his head cut off in France long time ago, and about his little boy, the dolphin, that would have been king, but they took and shut him up in jail, and some say he died there. Poor little chap. But some say he got out and got away and come to America. Well, that's good, but it'll be pretty lonesome. There ain't no kings here, is there, Huck? No. Then he can't get no situation. What he gonna do? Well, I don't know. Some of them gets on the police and some of them learns people how to talk French. Why, Huck, don't the French people talk the same way we does? No, Jim. You couldn't understand a word they said, not a single word. Well, now, I'd be ding-busted. How did that come? I don't know, but it's so. I got some of their jabber out of a book. Suppose a man was to come to you and say, Polyvoo Franzi, what would you think? I wouldn't think nothing. I'd take and bust him over the head. That is, if he weren't white. I wouldn't allow no nigger to call me that. Shucks, it ain't calling you anything. It's only saying, do you know how to talk French? Well, then, why couldn't he say it? Why, he is a-saying it. That's a Frenchman's way of saying it. Well, it's a blame ridiculous way, and I don't want to hear no more about it. There ain't no sense in it. Looky here, Jim. Does a cat talk like we do? No, a cat don't. Well, does a cow. No, a cow don't nother. Does a cat talk like a cow or a cow talk like a cat? No, they don't. It's natural and right for them to talk different from each other, ain't it? Course. And ain't it natural and right for a cat and a cow to talk different from us? Why, most surely it is. Well, then, why ain't it natural and right for a Frenchman to talk different from us? You answer me that. Is a cat a man, Huck? No. Well, then, there ain't no sense in a cat talking like a man. Is a cow a man, or is a cow a cat? No, she ain't either of them. Well, then, she ain't got no business to talk like either one or the other of them. Is a Frenchman a man? Yes. Well, then... Dad, blame it, why don't he talk like a man? You answer me, Dad. 
I see it weren't no use wasting words. You can't learn a nigger to argue, so I quit. Chapter 15 We judged that three nights more would fetch us to Cairo, at the bottom of Illinois, where the Ohio River comes in, and that was what we was after. We would sell the raft and get on a steamboat and go way up the Ohio amongst the free states, and then be out of trouble. Well, the second night a fog begun to come on, and we made for a towhead to tie to, for it wouldn't do to try to run in a fog. But when I paddled ahead in the canoe, with the line to make fast, there weren't anything but little saplings to tie to. I passed the line around one of them on the edge of the cut bank, but there was a stiff current, and the raft come booming down so lively she tore it out by the roots, and away she went. I see the fog closing down, and it made me so sick and scared I couldn't budge for most half a minute, it seemed to me. And then there weren't no raft in sight. You couldn't see twenty yards. I jumped into the canoe and run back to the stern, and grabbed the paddle and set her back a stroke, but she didn't come. I was in such a hurry I hadn't untied her. I got up and tried to untie her, but I was so excited my hands shook so I couldn't hardly do anything with them. As soon as I got started, I took out after the raft, hot and heavy, right down the towhead. That was all right as far as it went, but the towhead weren't sixty yards long, and the minute I flew by the foot of it, I shot out into the solid white fog and had no more idea which way I was going than a dead man. Thinks I, it won't do to paddle. First I know I'll run into the bank or a towhead or something. I got to set still and float, and yet it's mighty fidgety business to have to hold your hand still at such a time. I whooped and listened. Away down there somewheres I hear a small whoop, and up comes my spirits. I went tearing after it, listening sharp to hear it again. The next time it come, I see I weren't heading for it, but heading away to the right of it. And the next time, I was heading away to the left of it, and not gaining on it much either, for I was flying around, this way and that and t'other. But it was going straight ahead all the time. I did wish the fool would think to beat a tin pan, and beat it all the time, but he never did and it was the still places between the whoops that was making the trouble for me. Well, I fought along, and directly I hears the whoop behind me. I was tangled good now. That was somebody else's whoop, or else I was turned around. I throwed the paddle down. I heard the whoop again. It was behind me yet, but in a different place. It kept coming and kept changing its place, and I kept answering till by and by it was in front of me again, and I knowed the current had swung the canoe's head downstream, and I was all right if that was Jim and not some other raftsman hollering. I couldn't tell nothing about voices in a fog, for nothing don't look nor sound natural in a fog. The whooping went on, and in about a minute I come a-booming down on a cut bank with smoky ghosts of big trees on it. The current throwed me off to the left and shot by, amongst a lot of snags that fairly roared. The current was tearing by them so swift. In another second or two it was solid white and still again. I sat perfectly still then, listening to my heart thump, and I reckon I didn't draw a breath while it thumped a hundred. I just give up then. I knowed what the matter was. That cut bank was an island, and Jim had gone down t'other side of it. It weren't no towhead that you could float by in ten minutes. It had the big timber of a regular island. It might be five or six miles long and more than half a mile wide. I kept quiet with my ears cocked about fifteen minutes, I reckon. I was floating along, of course, four or five miles an hour, but you don't ever think of that. No, you feel like you're laying dead still on the water, and if a little glimpse of a snag slips by, you don't think to yourself how fast you're going, but you catch your breath and think, my, how that snag's tearing along. 
If you think it ain't dismal and lonesome out in a fog that way by yourself in the night, you try it once, you'll see. Next, for about a half an hour, I whoops now and then. At last I hears the answer a long ways off and tries to follow it, but I couldn't do it, and directly I judged I'd got into a nest of towheads, for I had little dim glimpses of them on both sides of me, sometimes just a narrow channel between, and some that I couldn't see I knowed was there because I'd hear the wash of the current against the old dead brush and trash that hung over the banks. Well, I weren't long losing the whoops down among the towheads, and I only tried to chase them a little while anyway, because it was worse than chasing a jack-o'-lantern. You never knowed a sound of dodge around so, and swap places so quick and so much. I had to claw away from the bank pretty lively four or five times to keep from knocking the islands out of the river, and so I judged the raft must be buttoned into the bank every now and then, or else it would get further ahead and clear out of hearing. It was floating a little faster than what I was. Well, I seemed to be in the open river again by and by, but I couldn't hear no sign of a whoop nowheres. I reckon Jim had fetched up on a snag, maybe, and it was all up with him. I was good and tired, so I laid down in the canoe and said I wouldn't bother no more. I didn't want to go to sleep, of course, but I was so sleepy I couldn't help it. So I thought I would take just one little catnap. But I reckon it was more than a catnap, for when I waked up the stars was shining bright, the fog was all gone, and I was spinning down a big bend stern first. First I didn't know where I was. I thought I was dreaming, and when things began to come back to me, they seemed to come up dim out of last week. It was a monstrous big river here, with the tallest and the thickest kind of timber on both banks, just a solid wall, as well as I could see by the stars. I looked away downstream and seen a black speck on the water. I took after it, but when I got to it, it weren't nothing but a couple of saw logs made fast together. Then I see another speck and chase that. Then another, and this time I was right. It was the raft. When I got to it, Jim was sitting there with his head down between his knees, asleep, with his right arm hanging over the steering oar. The other oar was smashed off and the raft was littered up with leaves and branches and dirt, so she'd had a rough time. I made fast and laid down under Jim's nose on the raft, and began to gap and stretch my fists out against Jim, and says, Hello, Jim. Have I been asleep? Why didn't you stir me up? Goodness gracious, is that you, Huck? And you ain't dead? You ain't drowned? You's back again? It's too good for true, honey. It's too good for true. Let me look at you, child. Let me feel of you. No, you ain't dead. You's back again, live and sound, just the same old Huck. The same old Huck, thanks to goodness. What's the matter with you, Jim? You been a-drinkin'? Drinkin'? Has I been a-drinkin'? Has I had a chance to be a-drinkin'? Well, then, what makes you talk so wild? How does I talk wild? How? Why, hain't you been talkin' about my comin' back and all that stuff, as if I'd been gone away? Huck. Huck Finn, you look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. Hain't you been gone away? Gone away? Why, what in the nation do you mean? I ain't been gone anywheres. Where would I go to? Well, looky here, boss. There's something wrong there is. Is I me, or who is I? Is I here, or where is I? Now that's what I want to know. Well, I think you're here plain enough, but I think you're a tangle-headed old fool, Jim. I is, is I? Will you answer me this? Didn't you tote out the line in the canoe for to make fast to the towhead? No, I didn't. What towhead? I ain't seen no towhead. 
You ain't seen no towhead. Looky here. Didn't the line pull loose and the raft go a humming down the river and leave you and the canoe behind in the fog? What fog? Why the fog? The fog that's been around all night. And didn't you whoop and didn't I whoop till we got mixed up in the islands and one of us got lost and t'other one was just as good as lost case he didn't know where he was? And didn't I bust up again a lot of them islands and have a terrible time and most get drowned? Now ain't that so, boss? Ain't it so? You answer me that. Well, this is too many for me, Jim. I ain't seen no fog, nor no islands, nor no troubles, nor nothing. I've been sitting here talking with you all night till you went to sleep about ten minutes ago, and I reckon I done the same. You couldn't have got drunk in that time, so of course you've been dreaming. Dad fetch it. How was I gwine to dream all that in ten minutes? Well, hang it all. You did dream it, because there didn't any of it happen. But Huck, It's all just as plain to me as it don't make no difference how plain it is. There ain't nothing in it. I know because I've been here all the time. Well, Jim didn't say nothing for about five minutes, but just sat there studying over it. Then he says, "Well, then, I reckon I did dream it, Huck. But dog my cats if it ain't the powerfulest dream I ever see, and I ain't ever had no dream before that's tired me like this one." Oh well, that's all right because a dream does tire a body like everything sometimes, but this one was a staving dream. Tell me all about it, Jim. So Jim went to work and told me the whole thing right through, just as it happened. Only he painted it up considerable. Then he said he must start in and interpret it because it was sent for a warning. He said the first towhead stood for a man that would try to do us some good, but the current was another man that would get us away from him. The whoops was warnings that would come to us every now and then, and if we didn't try hard to make out to understand them, they'd just take us into bad luck instead of keeping us out of it. The lot of towheads was troubles we was going to get into with quarrelsome people and all kinds of mean folks, but if we minded our business and didn't talk back and aggravate them, we would pull through and get out of the fog and into the big clear river, which was the free states, and wouldn't have no more trouble. It had clouded up pretty dark just after I got onto the raft, but it was clearing up again now. Oh well, that's all interpreted well enough as far as it goes, Jim. I says, but what does these things stand for? It was the leaves and rubbish on the raft and the smashed oar. You could see them first rate now. Jim looked at the trash, and then looked at me, and back at the trash again. He had got the dream fixed so strong in his head. That he couldn't seem to shake it loose and get the facts back into its place again right away, but when he did get the thing straightened around, he looked at me steady without ever smiling and says, "What do they stand for?" I's gwine to tell you. When I got all wore out with work and went to calling for you and went to sleep, my heart was most broke because you was lost, and I didn't care no more what become of me and the raft. And when I wake up and find you back again, all safe and sound, the tears come. And I could have got down on my knees and kissed your foot. I so thankful, and all you was thinking about was how you could make a fool of old Jim with a lie. That truck there is trash, and trash is what people is that puts dirt on their head or their friends and makes 'em ashamed. Then he got up slow and walked to the wigwam, and went in there without saying anything but that. But that was enough. It made me feel so mean. I could almost kissed his foot to get him to take it back. 
It was fifteen minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to a nigger. But I done it, and I weren't ever sorry for it afterwards, neither. I didn't do him no more mean tricks, and I wouldn't done that one if I'd a knowed it would make him feel that way. Chapter 16 We slept most all day, and started out at night, a little ways behind a monstrous long raft that was as long going by as a procession. She had four long sweeps at each end, so we judged she carried as many as thirty men, likely. She had five big wigwams aboard, wide apart, and an open campfire in the middle, and a tall flagpole at each end. There was a power of style about her. It amounted to something being a raftsman on such a craft as that. We went drifting down into a big bend, and the night clouded up and got hot. The river was very wide, and was walled with solid timber on both sides. You couldn't see a break in it hardly ever, or a light. We talked about Cairo, and wondered whether we would know it when we got to it. I said likely we wouldn't, because I had heard say there weren't but a dozen houses there, and if they didn't happen to have them lit up, how was we going to know we was passing a town? Jim said if the two big rivers joined together there, that would show. But I said maybe we might think we was passing the foot of an island and coming into the same old river again. Well, that disturbed Jim and me, too. So the question was, what to do? I said, paddle ashore the first time a light showed, and tell them Pap was behind, coming along with a trading scow, and was a green hand at the business and wanted to know how far it was to Cairo. Jim thought it was a good idea, so we took a smoke on it and waited. There weren't nothing to do now but to look out sharp for the town and not pass it without seeing it. He said he'd be mighty sure to see it, because he'd be a free man the minute he seen it, but if he missed it, he'd be in a slave country again and no more show for freedom. Every little while, he jumps up and says, There she is! But it weren't. It was jack-o'-lanterns or lightning bugs. So he sat down again and went to watching, same as before. Jim said it made him all over trembly and feverish to be so close to freedom. Well, I can tell you, it made me all over trembly and feverish too to hear him, because I begun to get it through my head that he was most free, and who was to blame for it? Why, me. I couldn't get that out of my conscience, no how, nor no way. It got to troubling me so I couldn't rest. I couldn't stay still in one place. It had never come home to me before what this thing was that I was doing, but now it did, and it stayed with me and scorched me more and more. I tried to make out to myself that I weren't to blame, because I didn't run Jim off from his rightful owner, but it weren't no use. Conscience up and says every time, but you knowed he was running off for his freedom, and you could have paddled ashore and told somebody. That was so. I couldn't get around that no way. That was where it pinched. Conscience says to me, What had poor Miss Watson done to you that you could see her nigger go off right under her eyes and never say one single word? What did that poor old woman do to you that you could treat her so mean? Why, she tried to learn you your book. She tried to learn you your manners. She tried to be good to you every way she knowed how. That's what she done. I got to feeling so mean and so miserable, I most wished I was dead. I fidgeted up and down the raft, abusing myself to myself, and Jim was fidgeting up and down past me. We neither of us could keep still. Every time he danced around and says, There's Cairo! It went through me like a shot, and I thought if it was Cairo, I reckoned I would die of miserableness. Jim talked out loud all the time while I was talking to myself. He was saying how the first thing he would do when he got to a free state, he would go to saving up money and never spend a single cent. And when he got enough, he would buy his wife, 
which was owned on a farm close to where Miss Watson lived, and then they would both work to buy the two children, and if their master wouldn't sell them, they'd get an abolitionist to go and steal them. It most froze me to hear such talk. He would never have dared to talk such in his life before. Just see what a difference it made in him the minute he judged he was about free. It was according to the old saying, Give a nigger an inch, and he'll take an L. Thinks I, this is what comes of my not thinking. Here was this nigger, which I had as good as helped to run away, coming right out flat-footed and saying he would steal his children, children that belonged to a man I didn't even know, a man that had never done me no harm. I was sorry to hear Jim say that. It was such a lowering of him. My conscience got to stirring me up hotter than ever, until at last I says, Let up on me. It ain't too late yet. I'll paddle ashore at the first light and tell. I felt easy and happy and light as a feather right off. All my troubles was gone. I went to looking out sharp for a light and sort of singing to myself. By and by, one showed. Jim sings out, We safe, Huck, we safe. Jump up and crack your heels. That's the old Cairo at last. I just know it. I says, I'll take the canoe and go see Jim. It mightn't be, you know. He jumped and got the canoe ready and put his old coat in the bottom for me to set on and give me the paddle. And as I shoved off, he says, Pooty soon I'll be shouting for joy, and I'll say, It's all accounts of Huck. I's a free man, and I couldn't have been free if it hadn't have been for Huck. Huck done it. Jim won't ever forget you, Huck. You's the best friend Jim's ever had, and you's the only friend old Jim's got now. I was paddling off all in a sweat to tell on him, but when he says this, it seemed to kind of take the tuck all out of me. I went along slow then, and I weren't right down certain whether I was glad I started or whether I weren't. When I was fifty yards off, Jim says, There you goes, the old true Huck, the only white gentleman that ever kept his promise to old Jim. Well, I just felt sick, but I says, I got to do it. I can't get out of it. Right then along comes a skiff with two men in it with guns, and they stopped and I stopped, and one of them says, What's that yonder? A piece of a raft, I says. Do you belong on it? Yes, sir. Any men on it? Only one, sir. Well, there's five niggers run off tonight up yonder, above the head of the bend. Is your man white or black? I didn't answer up prompt. I tried to, but the words wouldn't come. I tried for a second or two to brace up and out with it, but I weren't man enough, hadn't the spunk of a rabbit. I see I was weakening, so I just give up trying and up and says, He's white. I reckon we'll go and see for ourselves. Well, I wish you would, says I because it's Pap that's there, and maybe you'd help me tow the raft ashore where the light is. He's sick, and so is Ma'am and Mary Ann. Oh, the devil, we're in a hurry, boy. But I suppose we've got to. Come buckle to your paddle, and let's get along. I buckled to my paddle, and they laid to their oars. When we had made a stroke or two, I says, Pap will be mighty obliged to see you, I can tell you. Everybody goes away when I want them to help me tow the raft ashore, and I can't do it by myself. Well, that's infernal mean. Odd, too. Say, boy, what's the matter with your father? Oh, it's the... Well, it ain't anything much. They stopped pulling. It weren't but a mighty little ways to the raft now. One says, Boy, that's a lie. What is the matter with your pap? Answer up square now, and it'll be the better for you. Well, I will, sir, I will, honest. But don't leave us, please. It's the... the... Well, gentlemen, if you'll only pull ahead and let me heave you the headline, you won't have to come near the raft... Please do. Set her back, John, set her back, says one. They backed water. Keep away, boy, keep to Lord. 
Confounded. I just expect the wind has blown it to us. Your pap's got the smallpox, and you know it precious well. Why didn't you come out and say so? Do you want to spread it all over? Well, says I, blubbering, I've told everybody before, and they just went away and left us. Poor devil, there's something in that. We are right down sorry for you, but we... Well, hang it. We don't want the smallpox, you see. Looky here. I'll tell you what to do. Don't you try to land by yourself, or you'll smash everything to pieces. You float along down about twenty miles, and you'll come to a town on the left-hand side of the river. It will be long after sunup then, and when you ask for help, you tell them your folks are all down with chills and fever. Don't be a fool again and let people guess what is the matter. Now we're trying to do you a kindness, so you just put twenty miles between us. That's a good boy. It wouldn't do any good to land yonder where the light is. It's only a woodyard. Say... I reckon your father's poor, and I'm bound to say he's in pretty hard luck. Here, I'll put a twenty-dollar gold piece on this board, and you get it when it floats by. I feel mighty mean to leave you, but my kingdom, it won't do to fool smallpox, don't you see? Hold on, Parker, says the other man. Here's a twenty to put on the board for me. Goodbye, boy. You do as Mr. Parker told you, and you'll be all right. That's so, my boy. Goodbye, goodbye. If you see any runaway niggers, you get help and nab them. You can make some money by it. Goodbye, sir, says I. I won't let no runaway niggers get by me if I can help it. They went off, and I got aboard the raft, feeling bad and low, because I knowed very well I had done wrong, and I see it weren't no use for me to try to learn to do right. A body that don't get started right when he's little ain't got no show. When the pinch comes, there ain't nothing to back him up and keep him to his work, and so he gets beat. Then I thought a minute, says to myself, hold on. Suppose you done a right and give Jim up. Would you feel better than what you do now? No, says I. I'd feel bad. I'd feel just the same way I do now. Well, then, says I, what's the use you learning to do right when it's troublesome to do right and ain't no trouble to do wrong and the wages is just the same? I was stuck. I couldn't answer that. So I reckoned I wouldn't bother no more about it. But after this, always do whichever come handiest at the time. I went into the wigwam. Jim weren't there. I looked around. He weren't anywhere. I says, Jim! Here I is, Huck. Is they out of sight yet? Don't talk loud. He was in the river under the stern oar with just his nose out. I told him they were out of sight, so he come aboard. He says, I was listening to all the talk, and I slips into the river and was gwine to shove for the shore if they come aboard. Then I was gwine to swim to the raft again when they was gone. But lousy... How you did fool him, Huck. That was the smartest dodge. I tell you, child, I speck it save old Jim. Old Jim ain't gonna forget you for that, honey. Then we talked about the money. It was a pretty good raise, twenty dollars apiece. Jim said we could take deck passage on a steamboat now, and the money would last us as far as we wanted to go in the free states. He said twenty mile more weren't far for the raft to go, but he wished we was already there. Towards daybreak, we tied up, and Jim was mighty particular about hiding the raft good. Then he worked all day fixing things in bundles and getting ready to quit rafting. That night, about ten, we hove inside of the lights of a town away down the left-hand bend. I went off in a canoe to ask about it. Pretty soon I found a man out in the river with a skiff setting a trot line. I ranged up and says, Mister, is that town Cairo? Cairo? No, you must be a blame fool. What town is it, mister? If you want to know, go and find out. If you stay here bothering around me for about a half a minute longer, you'll get something you won't want. 
I paddled to the raft. Jim was awful disappointed, but I said, never mind, Cairo would be the next place, I reckoned. We passed another town before daylight, and I was going out again, but it was high ground, so I didn't. No high ground about Cairo, Jim said. I had forgot it. We laid up for the day on a towhead tolerable close to the left-hand bank. I begun to suspicion something. So did Jim. I says, Maybe we went by Cairo in the fog that night. He says, Don't let's talk about it, Huck. Poor niggas can't have no luck. I all expected that that rattlesnake's skin weren't done with its work. I wish I'd never seen that snake skin, Jim. I do wish I'd never laid eyes on it. It ain't your fault, Huck. You didn't know. Don't blame yourself about it. When it was daylight, here was the clear Ohio water in shore, sure enough, and outside was the old regular muddy. So it was all up with Cairo. We talked it all over. It wouldn't do to take to the shore. We couldn't take the raft up the stream, of course. There weren't no way but to wait for dark and start back in the canoe and take the chances. So we slept all day amongst the cottonwood thicket so as to be fresh for the work. And when we went back to the raft about dark, the canoe was gone. We didn't say a word for a good while. There weren't anything to say. We both knowed well enough it was some more work of the rattlesnake skin. So what was the use to talk about it? It would only look like we was finding fault, and that would be bound to fetch more bad luck, and keep on fetching it too, till we knowed enough to keep still. By and by we talked about what we better do, and found there weren't no way but just to go along down with the raft till we got a chance to buy a canoe to go back in. We weren't going to borrow it when there weren't anybody around the way Pap would do, for that might set people after us. So we shoved out after dark on the raft. Anybody that don't believe yet that it's foolishness to handle a rattlesnake skin, after all that that snake skin done for us, will believe it now if they read on and see what more it done for us. The place to buy canoes is off of rafts laying up at shore, but we didn't see no rafts laying up, so we went along during three hours and more. Well, the night got gray and rather thick, which is the next meanest thing to fog. You can't tell the shape of the river and you can't see no distance. It got to be very late and still, and then along comes a steamboat up the river. We lit the lantern and judged she would see it. Upstream boats didn't generally come close to us. They go out and follow the bars and hunt for easy water under the reefs. But nights like this, they bull right up the channel against the whole river. We could hear her pounding along but we didn't see her good till she was close. She aimed right for us. Often they do that and try to see how close they can come without touching. Sometimes the wheel bites off a sweep and then the pilot sticks his head out and laughs and thinks he's mighty smart. Well, here she comes, and we said she was going to try and shave us, but she didn't seem to be shearing off a bit. She was a big one, and she was coming in a hurry too, looking like a black cloud with rows of glowworms around it. But all of a sudden she bulged out, big and scary, with a long row of wide-open furnace doors shining like red-hot teeth, and her monstrous bows and guards hanging right over us. There was a yell at us and a jingling of bells to stop the engine, a pow-wow of cussing, and a whistling of steam. And as Jim went overboard on one side and I on the other, she comes smashing straight through the raft. I dived, and I aimed to find the bottom too, for a thirty-foot wheel had got to go over me, and I wanted it to have plenty of room. I could always stay under water a minute. This time, I reckon I stayed under a minute and a half. Then I bounced for the top in a hurry, for I was nearly busting. I popped out to my armpits and blowed the water out of my nose and puffed a bit. 
Of course, there was a booming current, and of course that boat started her engines again ten seconds after she stopped them, for they never cared much for raftsmen. So now she was churning along up the river, out of sight in the thick weather, though I could hear her. I sung out for Jim about a dozen times, but I didn't get any answer, so I grabbed a plank that touched me while I was treading water and struck out for shore, shoving it ahead of me. But I made out to see that the drift of the current was towards the left-hand shore, which meant I was in a crossing, so I changed off and went that way. It was one of these long, slanting two-mile crossings, so I was a good long time in getting over. I made a safe landing and clumb up the bank. I couldn't see but a little ways, but I went poking along over rough ground for a quarter of a mile or more, and then I run across a big old-fashioned double log house before I noticed it. I was going to rush by and get away, but a lot of dogs jumped out and went to howling and barking at me, and I knowed better than to move another peg. This presentation is dedicated by Gordon W. Draper to all of those who will enjoy this Mark Twain masterpiece. <laughs>